Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. And I have the pleasure of being joined by Sarah Jennings, who is the producer at NASA's Frontier Development Lab, Timothy Seabrook, NASA Frontier Development Lab researcher via the SETI Institute at University of Oxford, and Andres Rodriguez, Senior Principal Engineer at Intel's AIPG. And I am really excited to have a chance to talk a little bit about this program that you're all involved in and share it with the folks listening to the podcast. So welcome, everyone. Thank Thank you. you. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Why don't we get started by just kind of going around the table and doing intros. We'll start with with you, Sarah. Great. So I'm the producer for NASA Frontier Development Lab, which means I get the really cool job of working with the researchers for different challenges over the summer throughout our program. And previously, I've worked in emerging tech and innovation at XPRIZE, where I did prize design and operations. And I've done a lot of work with the private space industry as well. Awesome. Awesome. Andres? Yeah, thanks for having me here. As engineering into machine learning, engineering in Intel meet with various customers to understand their workloads and build solutions for them. And I work with a lot of other Intel teams to provide, to build a solution for our customers. The solutions may be anywhere from designing models for their particular problems, so deep learning models, or optimizing their algorithms so that, so that they run efficiently on Intel architecture. I've been working on AI for about 13 years, and it's an exciting area to be, especially over the past four years, five years, to see the tremendous growth and interest from the community in this area. Absolutely. How about you, Tim? So I'm, as you mentioned previously, doing my my PhD at the University of Oxford. I come from quite a a mixed multidisciplinary background. So I've studied under engineering, computer science, and communication systems. And that's given me quite a a broad view of of technology and also of the machine learning field. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm I'm focusing and I'm I'm super interested in verification of learning in multi-agent systems so that hopefully we can have better specification about these learning agents so that they might be able to be deployed and used in public realms. Because at the minute, you know, it can be a little bit risky to put something out that learns without knowing what it could learn. Mm -hmm. So that's my focus there. Yeah, I was super happy to go along to the Frontier Development Lab over over the summer, being based at NASA. That was a a great opportunity and a great experience, and and I'm happy to be continuing involvement with that going forward. And what was your role with the program? I was a researcher there. I applied through the normal means to the application process, got to meet James and Sarah first online and then in person. So there were a number of projects that were involved at the Frontier Development Lab, and I was involved in one of those, which was the exploration of lunar water and volatiles. Okay. Actually, I'll, I'll talk a little bit, I guess, a little about that now. We can dig into that in a second. For now, it probably makes sense to get a little bit more context on FDL as a whole and what the mission is. Sarah, what can you tell us about FDL? Yeah, so FDL is an Applied Artificial Intelligence Research Accelerator, and it was kind of started with the premise of bringing back the Apollo era of interdisciplinary teams okay. paired with rapid innovation. And so during that time, they would you know bring together the comms team with the life support team and the propulsion team all in the same room so that they could work on 
advancing things faster. Okay. And so that was really where this started from. It started in 2016 with Asteroid Grand Challenge, where they mostly focused on planetary defense problems. And now we're moving on to year three because the program has been so successful. So we bring together researchers from AI fields and we pair them with planetary scientists. Okay. And we work on challenges that are of interest to NASA. Mm. And now I've, I've heard this description before, and every time planetary defense is said, I think of like defending us against aliens. <laughs> like, what does that mean to you? <laughs> yeah, so the challenges that we focused on were asteroids and long-period comets for this past year. Okay. So it's mainly detection and understanding them a little bit better. So if there was an asteroid that was coming towards us, we'd have a little bit more of an understanding of mitigation strategies okay. and things like that. Okay. So it actually is protecting us from things that are hurling towards us from space. And so tell us about the program. What's the structure of the FDL program and how, you know, how is it organized? Who's involved? Yeah, so it is a public-private partnership. So Mm -hmm. it's with NASA Ames and hosted at the SETI Institute. And then we are able to bring a lot of our private partners in, which allows us to bring in researchers and mentors from around the world. It is an eight-week program that takes place out at NASA Ames in Silicon Valley, where we bring in about 24 researchers and put them on teams of four for Mm -hmm. that eight-week program. It starts out with a boot camp where everybody gets an understanding of all the problems, and then it goes into brainstorming different approaches to work on solutions for them. And then they do rapid prototyping during that time. But then after the program ends, it doesn't the work doesn't end. We mm. do a lot of continuity work, and Tim will talk a little bit more about what he's doing with Intel later. So. Okay. And the, the researchers that you've referred to, they're all or predominantly PhD students, or does it vary? It varies. We had a mix of PhDs, postdocs, and individuals in the industry that actually took sabbaticals from their job. Oh, wow. And we had an, an astronomer from Brazil. So it's quite a combination. It's a really high caliber of people that we bring in. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So, Tim, why don't you give us a, an overview of the, the types of research that the different teams worked on? Sure. So, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of excitement around the field of deep learning at the moment. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm not sure if you noticed. <laughs> yeah, so I guess to start off with expanding on what Sarah mentioned was it seemed like uh, the, the goal of the Frontier Development Lab was really to empower planetary scientists who have been working in the field for a long time mm-hmm. with these new technologies and, and you know, enable them to achieve more than, than they've been able to previously. So we were yeah, very much looking at, and the boot camp was incredibly helpful to be talking with NASA scientists and really understand the state of the game when it comes to space and, and what's been done and what needs to be done next. Right. Was that an area that you had any experience with going in? I mean, as a, as a hobbyist, you know, uh-huh. like, uh, we're, all, we're all nerds at the front of development. Lab. <laughs> we all love a little bit of space, a bit of Star Trek, a bit, uh-huh. bit of Star Wars and, and stuff like that. So, I don't know. Uh, yeah, as, as a hobbyist following Space News, I was, I was fairly aware of things, but okay. not to the depth of NASA scientists, of course, who've been of working course. in the field for 40 years. <laughs> Throughout that boot camp week, we really did come to understand what, what was going on and sort of did have to explore where we could contribute. So we had the artistic freedom to, to explore and, and, and do the prototyping and, mm-hmm. and work out where our skills as individuals aligned with, with the needs of, of the group. So each individual team came up with, a, with their own custom solution to, to the problems they were facing. Okay. So that a lot of it was, so for my team, it was image classification. Similarly, for, for long period comments, looking at, 
uh, cameras situated around the world. Sarah, do you know what the name of the is? It the it's Camus the Camus, project? Yeah. Camus project. Camus project. Okay. Yeah. So, and what the goal of that is is to detect objects coming through the atmosphere and identifying when it is an object and it's not just a bat or a firebug that's gone in front of the lens and doing that <laughs> autonomously because okay. people have been doing that for 40 years by hand which right. is incredibly arduous right the asteroid shape modeling team were using variational autoencoders mm. to try and transfer doppler shift images which are incredibly unintuitive into a 3d model so that the shapes of asteroids and the distribution of the shapes of asteroids can be better understood the team mm-hmm. was working on Asian techniques to ensure that there was to encode the knowledge of the NASA scientists into, into a prior distribution so that mm-hmm. the shapes that came out made sense. So the weather prediction teams, they were mm-hmm. looking at predicting when a coronal mass ejection might come out, which, which would be quite catastrophic if it does. When a what? Coronal mass ejection. So when a, a magnetic band within the sun sort of snaps and it ejects a huge plume of hot plasma the solar system and the earth luckily has a magnetic field that protects us from most of that but Mm -hmm. if we get hit by one or two or several waves then it it can be quite catastrophic and damage satellites of course it could be dangerous for people on Mm -hmm. space stations how often does this kind of thing happen so there was the carringer event in the carrington event carrington event excuse me no relation to carrington (laughs) my last name yeah Yeah, that was the last major one but they when was that Quite frequently. So I think it was around late 19th century. Okay. So there wasn't too much electricity around by then. So it wasn't too damaging to that. It went largely unnoticed, apart from in Canada, I I believe, is where it was noticed the most. So that like caused some great northern lights to to show up. So people were really loving that. But it would be a little bit more damaging now. But yeah, I believe uh, there are smaller events happening quite a lot. And I mean, we're a small dot in a solar system, so right. a lot of the time they'll miss us, yeah. which is fortunate. But yeah, I mean, in, in day-to-day life, they, they can affect things like GPS, mobile phone signals, things like that. Okay. So we really need to have a prediction of when one of these events might happen. And the way you do that is by monitoring hyperspectral images of the sun's surface, what you can see. Okay. So we had a, a, the team there was using LSTM, which mm-hmm. is a, a type of neural network often used for neural linguistic programming. It's long short-term memory. That's what the LSTM stands for. So that takes into account the long-term history of the sun's activity as well as the short-term. So it's quite useful in financial predictions as well. Mm-hmm. We also had the other team, Solar Terrestrial Interaction. They had a hard time. Terrestrial interaction? Solar Terrestrial. Solar Terrestrial Interaction. So, so that's what happens when this solar activity does hit the Earth. Okay. And how that might affect uh, electrical companies, how that might affect, you know, markets and things like this. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to get a hold, a hold of a lot of that data. I mean, an energy just for that problem or for all of these problems that we've discussed? Well, luckily, there is a, a huge wealth of public data for most of these things, particularly when it comes to looking at the moon. You know, it's up there. We've got, fortunately, NASA is a, a public entity. So all the work they do, well, a lot of the data they do is, is available to the public. Okay which is great for hobbyists. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, the, the Solar Terrestrial Interaction team were pulling as much data as they could from disparate sources, from insurance companies, from you know, claims of damage that have been done to transformers and things like this, and trying, mm-hmm. to, trying to find a, a model to describe particularly what the cost of damage could be if, if one of these events happened. Okay. So they ended up using a wide variety of techniques and machine learning inference and bundling them together and see what, where they could come out with. 
And I guess last but not least, the work that the team I was on <laughs> was working on. We had a good team. It was Dietmar Bacchus, who is a, he, he does a lot of mapping problems mm-hmm. and a lot of, yeah, a lot of synthesis of maps and working on those. Uh, Eleni Boacek, who does computer vision for Mars rovers. We had Nada Musa, who was one of those fellows from industry, who comes from a, a strong understanding of computer vision. Myself and also we were supported by Tony Dubovolskis, who is a planetary scientist, particularly interested in crater formations, which was incredibly useful. And so what was your project? So the project was <laughs> to find a way to facilitate the investigation and the quantification of how much water or volatiles, we focused on water, is on the lunar surface. And there's potentially quite a lot. I was surprised to learn this. Because, you know, there's a, a lot of discussion about maybe there's water on Mars, maybe there's water on right. one of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn. But it seems there's, there's a lot, quite a lot hope closer to home. Sarah, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, why is, you know, I, you know in, in the one sense there's, you know, it's obvious that we'd be interested in exploring, you know, water on the moon, but how, you know, what are, how does NASA think about the reason why this is important? And maybe you can also touch on some of the, you know, how do we know there's water on the moon? Yeah, so I can touch a little bit on that without overstepping. But so the reason NASA is focused on the moon currently is because with this new administration, we're focused on going back to the moon. So the reason why lunar resources is important, and Tim can also share a little bit more about that, is that those resources are very expensive to move from the Earth into space. And so if you Mm. already have those resources there, then you could utilize them for fuel or for other things, potentially like settlements and things, where you don't have to import those materials there. Mm -hmm. So that's another another way there. (laughs) Okay. And I heard an anecdote about the first discovery of water on the moon. Like, how do we... Yeah. So it was the the La Crosse mission. So... The Apollo, some Apollo 15 rock samples showed water in them. But, mm-hmm. you know, there was dispute of whether or not they'd been contaminated and, and things like this. Right. So there was seeking for further evidence. So there were a couple of missions, one from NASA and one from the Indian Space Agency, mm-hmm. which in, involved sending an impactor into a crater on the South mm-hmm. Pole that never sees sunlight. So I, I can explain a little bit maybe why that was the reason, but why that was chosen. So the impactor, once it hit the surface, it... The, it's basically crashing a ship into a vehicle of some sort into the side of the crater. Yeah, and the ejector plume that came out, all the dust that was kicked up, spectral reading was taken of that and okay. showed, I believe, about 4.6% water. In the form of ice particles, I imagine? or Yeah, I, I'm not sure because the okay. impact of the energy might have vaporized some of it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, in its stable form, it would, it would have been ice, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the reason that they were targeting permanently shadowed craters. Mm-hmm. It's because, I mean, if, if you consider that over the last four billion years, every meteor and comet that's impacted on the moon has had the potential to contain some rare earth metals and some water, all of that's been deposited. Some of it will evaporate, some of it will escape the atmosphere, but some of it will get stuck in the bottom of craters that are at 40 Kelvin. So anything that goes in there freezes and gets stuck there potentially forever. Okay. So it's, it's considered that might be, you know, the great wealth, the, the, the bank of resources there is available on the moon. Mm. And the role of your team was to basically figure out how much of this stuff might exist. And the role of our team was to work out how we could contribute <laughs> to the accessing of it, right? Okay. Using machine learning. Right. So, yeah, we, we started off. So right now, I would, as I understand, 
an objective would be to exactly investigate, understand how much there is, understand if it's economically viable to, to set up a, a base there or, or to send further missions. Right. The way you do that is with rovers, is with in-situ resource measure, measurements. Mm-hmm. So we were looking firstly at looking at traverse planning. Rovers have to stay in sunlight all the whole time with are solar powered mm-hmm. or for as long as possible anyway. They have to stay in direct communication with the Earth a lot of the time. So the moon's quite close, so usually it's still human-operated when there's a rover up there. It's only a second or two delay. So we were looking at that problem, and then we realized that, you know, that there was some other work that needed to be done before that to facilitate that sort of advancement. Mm-hmm. And what was that other work? So in doing the traverse planning, we, we realized that it's, the maps weren't in the highest quality that, that we had come to expect, you know. Maybe, maybe naively, <laughs> we, we thought the moon's just above us, that the maps should be complete. Right, but right. In regions where there is permanent shadow, visual images are difficult to, to grab. Okay. And also, as the lunar reconnaissance orbiter, which is where we took our data from, as that's orbited the moon thousands and thousands of time and built a laser altimeter, sort of height map readings, the stitching and the, the composite images that are formed have created artifacts, okay. which to a rover, in a rover's eyes, look like 20-foot cliffs and 20-foot ditches. Mm. So when you're trying that to... That aren't actually there. That may not may, be yeah, yeah, actually may be there. there, but... A lot of them aren't. So you can't just smooth over because, I mean, a rover's an expensive thing to put on the moon. You don't want it to fall down one of these ditches right, if, right. if it is real. But also, you can't do an automated plan until you've worked out which ones are real and which ones aren't. Okay. So that became the focus of our, our continued work. Okay. And there was also an element of your work that involved trying to count the number of craters on the moon? So Where did that come in? The lunar surface. I suppose every time a picture of the lunar surface has been taken, Right. There's no GPS, right? So, so you don't know exactly where that photo is. Yeah. But thankfully, craters being so abundant form a sort of fingerprint that allows you to uniquely identify what you're looking at. Okay. And by matching that in a visual image with the elevation model, then you can compare what the artifacts might be in the elevation model with, okay. with the visual images. And then if it's in one but not the other, then you know it doesn't exist. Mm. If it's in both, then you know, okay, that is a ditch that I need to watch out for. And maybe going back to more fundamental kind of space question, like how many craters are on the moon? Oh, gosh. More than we could count. <laughs> more than we can count. Are these craters that were all created with the creation of the moon itself, or are these craters a result of impact like comets or other things? So I believe there's 10 notable fresh impacts per day. So we looked at around forty to 100,000 craters. Okay. And that was around a thousandth of a percent of the lunar surface. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they're coming every day, but I think a lot of it was historical. A lot of it has, has been in the past and it's calmed down a bit, but it's, it's still going. There's still impacts every day, yes. Okay. Is the Earth impacted that much by craters? Is it our magnetic field, as you were describing earlier, that protects us from that? Or do we get our fair share of those crater impacts as well? Like certainly the Earth is impacted with craters like the moon is. So we, we do get a, a lot of things coming through the atmosphere. You might see a shooting star every now and again. That, that's, that's a small meteoroid coming through the atmosphere. The atmosphere is, is another protective shield for us. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, the friction that the meteoroid comes under as it's entering causes it to burn up a lot of the time or break apart. So we do have that minor protection. Yeah, the planetary defense team, they're really looking at bigger asteroids that, that could be more deadly. So. Mm-hmm. I think it was 10 years ago, we thought there were maybe 16,000 of these. Now, now we know there's hundreds of thousands of potentially dangerous objects floating around in space. Mm. 
Luckily, we've gotten much better at modeling where these are and understanding which ones could be dangerous. And it looks like we're in the clear, at least for now. So to kind of take a step back, you're trying to ultimately understand the available resources on the moon. In order to do that, one of the techniques involved was was trying to understand actually was trying to plan out the rover mission or provide information that would be used in planning a rover mission. In order to do that, we need to understand how the maps all fit together. And in order to do that, we need to be able to identify the craters. Yeah. So this was really a keystone that would open up the possibility for future work to go ahead. Right. And so what was the what were the techniques and challenges involved in identifying the, the craters? I mean, the main challenges came to even understanding the problem. I mean, it, it took a, a lot. Thank God we had the prototyping process. So it, we only came to understand that problem by trying to do the, the traverse plans. When it came to it, I think we were five weeks into the program already. There were three weeks left. So we had a lot of lot, late nights labeling all the data. So for any machine learning algorithm, you need to give it training examples, right? You need to teach it as, as, as though it's going through school. Right. So we had to collect images, uh, representative images of craters and come to an agreement of what a crater looks like so that we could feed that to our algorithm. Okay. And that was surprisingly difficult, actually. We had five people on the team and several others were helping us label these, these images. And to come to a consensus on which should be considered to be good representations of craters and which weren't and which were too ambiguous mm. it was a long process, actually. Meaning full-fledged craters versus, you know, dips in the terrain or yeah, something or like even, that? Or? So, so one interesting thing that we came across was that actually hills look exactly the same as craters, <laughs> depending on the angle of the light. Okay. So that was a little bit difficult. After you were looking through thousands of these, everything started looking like a hill and you weren't sure anymore. So you had to take a break every now and again to, okay. you know, let your perception rest again. So, yeah, it was the sheer number of training exams that we, that we had to label ourselves. And then... And so how many of these craters did you personally label? I looked through 40,000. Wow. There was a bottle of scotch nearby. <laughs> that definitely helped me through that process. Yeah, so, so we got through that. And then once we got all that training data, then it, it went through the, the iteration process of developing a convolutional neural network classifier. And thankfully, we had Intel Nirvana and the technology there to, to help us go through that process quickly. And we had the support of the Intel engineers to give us advice and support on how to use their framework most effectively. Was there anything that came up as kind of unique about training a model in this situation that you wouldn't expect in other, you know, applications of CNNs? I would imagine one of the things that is unique compared to what you usually find in academia, you're focusing on two aspects. One is, is it a bi- it's a binary, is this a crater or, or not? You're not trying to classify between dozens or hundreds of classes. Mm. And the second one is you are also doing detection. You don't, you, you're looking for the craters in, in large images. And so the project essentially has these two steps. First, can you classify craters versus non-craters? And, mm. and second, can you then detect them in a large image? Mm. I don't know if, if you have other things to add to yeah, so, so one of the particular problems with the crater detection was that 
there's just so many of them and they're all overlaying on each other and, and that that's quite a difficult image classification problem mm -hmm. so if you're doing facial recognition for example you don't expect to see a face and a face and a face and a face mm -hmm. or, or like a, a cluster <laughs> of faces all together right. so that that was definitely a challenge for the for the image classifier mm. andres maybe you know, give us some perspective on like why does intel you know support a program like this is it you know how does Intel think about engaging with programs like FTL? Well, Intel wants to advance science, mm -hmm. and this is a great opportunity for Intel to, to partner both with researchers, with NASA engineers, to, with the NASA program to advance science. And in addition, Intel wants to democratize machine learning. So it was a great opportunity to work with engineers that many of them have not, do not have a background in machine learning and give them the knowledge and the tools to use machine learning for a particular problem. Mm. And how did your team in particular get involved with the projects? So we were, we were invited. One of our team managers was, re received a, an invitation for, for Intel to participate and we were very excited to jump in the <laughs> opportunity. I went to the kickoff meeting and got to meet the researchers in the program and invited a couple of my colleagues to come and participate. So one who couldn't be here, unfortunately, his name is Najib Hakim, who was the, the main Intel engineer. He's a principal engineer with a strong background in, in machine learning and deep learning, and, and he provided a lot of the mentorship and guidance that the engineers needed, along with Ravi Panchamarthi and Hanlin, uh, they provided additional assistance, engineer assistance to the, to the teams. Mm. You mentioned a moment ago the kind of the unique challenges of, of this problem with regard to you know, clusters of craters and craters and craters and all that kind of stuff. How did you overcome those problems? So thankfully, the problem that we were trying to solve was the co-registration improvement of maps. Mm -hmm. So, so long as we could get a reliable fingerprint for an image that could be matched in the elevation model, then that would satisfy our goals. So when there was particularly rough areas, then it didn't matter so much that, that maybe uh, the quality of our image classifier suffered in those regions because we were able to make up for it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So it would definitely be a, a problem for a research question almost. And when it comes to building an application in a short period of time, sometimes, yeah, we, we had to make do with what we had and do it quickly rather than, you know, trying to bite off more than we could chew and, and ending up not contributing anything. Right, right, right. And so how do you envision, I understand there's an, like an ongoing role for you in particular in this project with FDL. How does it move forward? So, I mean, identifying the, the issues that we, we had with the time constraints. Yeah, we all invited individually to continue to contribute if we, if we would like to. And I think for, for many of us, it, it's, you know, this really stirred up our passion and our excitement about the whole, the whole field. Uh -huh. So since the end of the project, we've been, I've been working to, you know, tidy up the code, make it pu publicly available. And we've been working alongside the folks at Intel to improve the algorithm to be able to detect clusters of, of creators and creators within creators using a newer techniques, a single shot detector. It's a multi-box detector, which allows you to identify lots of creators in the same image. Okay. So 
moving forward, I suppose we're looking forward to uh, Frontier Development Lab 2018. We're going to be taking applications for that currently up, up until March. And really what we're looking for is, is to see what ideas people come with and what, how, the ways that they can contribute to, to the continuation of, the, of this project. Mm. Andres, were there any kind of unique properties of the Intel AI stack that lent themselves to solving this problem or that you know, helped in helping these research teams advance their research? Yeah, Intel, we have the full solution stack anywhere from starting at the bottom with our hardware. We have our general purpose CPUs or Xeon processors. And we're also developing a deep learning accelerator, specific target for deep learning world that was not available in 2017 when, when these researchers were working on this problem. We hope that they'll be able to use it the following summer. But, but we have our, our CPUs. In, in addition to that, we have libraries that are optimized to run deep learning functions efficiently on our CPUs. You might have heard of the Intel Math Kernel Library. We, in addition, we have deep learning frameworks that we've optimized, such as CAFE, TensorFlow, MXNet. And okay. we have an in-house framework called Neon, which was the framework that was made available FDL for the researchers to use. Okay. Neon's unique in the sense that it's a framework that is highly optimized by Intel for both CPUs and GPUs, so you can get you can get very high throughput and high utilization regardless of the hardware backend that you use. And in addition to that, we actually have a Nirvana offering called the Intel AI Cloud. It used to be called the Intel Nirvana Cloud. Mm -hmm. And this is a cloud where our partners can log in and easily launch their jobs. And there are, they have the tools to easily experiment with various models and various hyperparameters meaning various knobs that you need to often tweak in order to get your models to efficiently train. So we spent some time getting the engineers in FDL up to speed on, on how to use the tools. But, you know, once you, once you spend a few days or even less, a couple of days or a day, you can start training your own models. So you usually start by training a, a simple model like, like Lynette, which is, an old model that was developed a couple of decades ago, and you can do that your first day, your first couple hours, you, you, you train that model on, on image recognition, and then you can actually modify it a little bit to, to start getting a baseline on how well does this work on our crater images, and, and do I need to add more layers? Do I need to add more units or neurons in each layer? Once you can do creator classification, then you can move into detection, which as Tim was talking about, we initially we use single shot detection algorithm or SSD. And there are newer algorithms that, that are better for this type of workloads where you have small craters, some large craters, and you don't have a diversity of classes you're trying to classify. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be the the next step of classifiers or detectors that we're going to be using. Awesome. Awesome. This sounds like an amazing program. <laughs> Maybe we can 
close out by having you, Sarah, tell us like for folks that want to learn more about participating in the 2018 program, is there a site they can go to or what's the process there? Yeah. So if you're interested in the program, you would go to frontierdevelopmentlab.org. And like Tim said, we do have our applications open. We're currently doing our planning for next year. And so our challenges should be launched here soon as well. Okay. And Tim, from you, any final thoughts or advice for folks that might be interested in pursuing either getting involved in FDL or doing similar research? Yeah, I'd say just go for it. You know, <laughs> like I grew up in the UK. I never imagined for a second that I could be working alongside NASA scientists or living on a NASA facility. Uh-huh. The similar program was absolutely excellent. If you're wanting to get involved in machine learning, start reading online, like take small small goals keep pursuing them it's very easy to be like oh should should i learn this machine learning algorithm today or should i watch another season of my favorite <laughs> tv show put short-term goals keep going for it and and you'll be able to contribute in these in this new and exciting field as well awesome awesome andres how about from you any parting thoughts yeah intel's doing a lot of exciting work to advance ai and you can check out what we're doing at internalrunner.com in addition of developing this new deep learning accelerator. You know, we've optimized the, f- the framework. So if you were to do deep learning on CPUs today, you'll see significant gains in performance. And if you were, if you had tried to do deep learning on CPUs a year ago or even six months ago. So, wow. so it's an, it's an exciting time. We want to democratize the use of deep learning and, and most facilities have Intel's CPUs, so, so we hope that they can be put to good use, such as we did with, with FDL. On that note, for the hobbyists, Intel does have an AI bootcamp that provides a lot of resources available to, for people to learn how to use Intel Nirvana. Oh, well, Intel AI, I think it's called now. And yeah, get involved and, and get, their, get their hands dirty with, with the finer points of, of learning machine learning. Awesome, as well as a, the DevCloud offering, which I did a interview, I forget which episode it was, but we'll put that in the show notes as well. Folks can sign up for access to that too. Thanks. Awesome. Well, Sarah, Andres, Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thank, Thank you. for trying that out. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Sarah, Timothy, Andres, or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelaicom slash talk slash 89. To follow along with the NIP series, visit twimmelaicom slash NIPS 2017. To enter our Twimmel 1 mil contest, visit twimmelaicom slash Twimmel 1 mil. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you either via a comment on the show notes page or via a tweet to at Twimmel AI or at Sam Charrington. Thanks once again to Intel Nirvana for their sponsorship of this series. To learn more about the Intel Nirvana NNP and the other things Intel's been up to in the AI arena, visit intelnirvana.com. As I mentioned a few weeks back, this will be our final series of shows for the year. So take your time and take it all in and get caught up on any of the old pods you've been saving up. Happy holidays and happy new year. See you in 2018. And of course, thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.